In the series of books, Winnie the Pooh, by A.A. Milne, there is a story. You find it in book one, chapter eight, and it's called In Which Christopher Robin Leads an Expotition to the North Pole. On one fine day, Pooh set out to sing his newest song, which I won't sing for you, to Christopher <laughs> Robin. But Christopher Robin had bigger plans that day. He is planning an expedition for all his forest friends. Pooh had no idea, not even a little one, what an expotition was, nor where it would take them, nor what they might find. So Christopher Robin explained, we are going to discover the North Pole. Oh, said Pooh, what is the North Pole? Oh, it's a thing you discover, said Christopher Robin carelessly, not being quite sure himself. Oh, I see, said Pooh. Are bears any good at discovering it? Well, of course they are. And Rabbit and Kanga and all of you. It's an expedition. That's what expedition means. A long line of everybody. And you must tell the others to get ready while I see if my gun's right. And we must all bring provisions. Bring what? Asked Pooh. Things to eat, Christopher Robin answered. And so they set off a long line of everybody with provisions to discover a thing you discover, specifically the North Pole. After some time walking, they stopped to eat their provisions on the shore of a stream. And while washing himself after eating, little baby Roo, the kangaroo named Roo, fell into the stream. While the others chased him downstream helplessly, Pooh stumbled upon a large stick, maybe it was a pole, which he held out over the stream. Little Roo drifted up against the pole and was thus able to climb out. Christopher Robin questioned Pooh about that amazing life-saving pole, and Pooh replied simply, I just found it, he said. I thought it ought to be useful, and I picked it up. Pooh, said Christopher Robin solemnly, the expedition is over. You have found the North Pole. <laughs> oh, said Pooh, and that was that. <laughs> In a similar manner, we begin the second full week of our annual Lenten Expotition. Yes, we do. Um, Jesus sets out uphill one morning with a long line of everybody, everybody being Peter, James, and John. They were off to discover a thing you discover. The North Pole, maybe, or something equally mysterious. I often wonder, as I think about this story, how much clatter and chaos 
must have gone on among Peter, James, and John as they scrambled uphill behind Jesus. These three men were the noisemakers among the disciples, the ones who questioned and challenged and fussed over things, chief among them, Peter. Peter may best be described as an ever-churning mind, bursting with ideas that just sort of tumble out of his mouth. All of them interesting, not all of them well-timed. So up they go, chatter and clatter and scrambling to be the one closest to Jesus, each no doubt wanting to be the first to discover what people discover when following Jesus up a hill. Then as they crested the hilltop, Jesus began to glow. That was enough to raise eyebrows on those three disciples, no doubt. But before they had linked, the vision multiplied. There were the figures of Moses and Elijah in the guise of something bright and dazzling on the hilltop. Now, I don't know whether or not Jesus knew that this was going to happen at the top of the mountain. I like to think he was surprised as anybody because he was human. He was human. And don't we all deserve a pleasant, thrilling surprise when we reach a mountaintop? I think we do. So let's say Jesus was surprised even though he was a participant in this vision. Let's say the whole long line of everybody was surprised, all of them, even flabbergasted. Don't you love that word? Flabbergasted. We don't use that much. We should. We should use that word more because it's a pretty awesome word. So let's say they were just completely flabbergasted. Under the circumstances, I think I would be happy to remain standing upright. I have a problem with that anyway. Um, and to keep my balance while I was staring in complete disbelief at what I was seeing. But Peter, the word tumbler, had an idea, a plan of action. Not a good one necessarily, but it was an idea. It is good for us to be here, he proclaims, and surely it was good to be there. I could build little dwelling places for each of you, said Peter. And I wonder, what would that be? I imagine little A-frames, complete with viewing windows, so that everyone forever in a long orderly line could climb on up that mountain and discover what Peter, James, and John had discovered on their morning expedition with Jesus. Wouldn't that be fun? walk up the mountain and there they are. We'll never know, though, what lovely or lopsided details Peter may have tacked on to his big idea, nor what Jesus' response to that plan might have been. Because while Peter was still babbling on about building little A-frames, God, who appeared neatly tucked in a bright cloud, interrupted to claim that this Dazzling Jesus was the beloved one, God's beloved, God's son. And it was that voice making that claim 
that knocked Peter and his companions to the ground, face first, into the dust of the mountaintop. If we're to take our story at face value, between the dazzle and the dust, little or no time passed. As soon as the disciples fell to the ground, Jesus was there, kneeling beside them, touching them, his very human presence, soothing their very human fears. There was no more dazzle, only dust and compassion. Get up, he said, and do not be afraid. It wasn't a demand, really. It was more like permission, a signal that there is nothing amiss, nothing at all that should be unexpected on that mountaintop, just a common walk, a long line of everybody, discovering again the God who is always and everywhere there to be discovered. Really, God's presence is as common as long sticks by the side of a stream, as ever-present and steady and important and hard to pin down as the North Pole. And that was that. God, right where God ought to be. doing surprising things. I looked up the definition of transfiguration this week. It's a normal word, you know. It can be used in other ways. And it has normal meanings. It has a root and a prefix. It has a verb form and a noun form, and it can even become an adjective. It means something about being changed in appearance. It implies that the change makes something more beautiful, or it reveals the spiritual nature of a thing. One of the sentences, you know how in dictionaries I always put sentences, use this word in a sentence, please? So one of the sentences with this definition was, in this light, the junk undergoes a transfiguration. It shines. So maybe Jesus standing there, dazzling, was a trick of light. Maybe it was blinding sunlight and the disciples could only see this glare. And maybe it was shrubbery taking on the appearance of ancient prophets. I suppose that could happen. But I don't think so. The Jewish people had a centuries-long history of God popping up in one form or another as they walked along ordinary paths. They had long heard God's voice in comforting gardens, in forbidding wilderness places, in dreams, and in wide-awake moments. No doubt, we in this room have seen and heard God in our lives. Maybe we saw and heard without a smidge of doubt. What a gift. Maybe we've been left wondering for half of our lives, was that God or was that too much sunlight? Maybe 
We've passed through those moments of God appearing to us blissfully unaware. But it has happened to everyone sitting here, and it continues to happen because God, God does what God does. God does presence. God does being with you. That's what God does. All the stories we've read this morning tell us about journeys and miracles, about where we go and how we discover God in new places. They remind us that we can't plan ahead, can't bring the just right provisions to capture that glimpse of God that we'll discover, not because the discovery will be too brief or too odd or too frightening, but simply because there is no container, no form of media, no style of architecture that could ever do justice to a miracle. Abram and his long line of everybody trod miles across the deserts and foreign landscapes. No doubt they witnessed God again and again in the sights and the sounds and the events of those miles. They witnessed God in stars, and in sand, and even later on, in the form of angels eating and drinking under a tree. All the twists and turns of their journey have long been blown over by ancient winds, but we still have their story, and we can still see what they saw. Our psalm today reflects a particular moment in another uphill journey, God's people walking up the hillside to worship God. This song of ascent, poetry, a psalm, written to be sung by the people as they set out on their journey upward, brings a recognition that the miracle that is God, I'm sorry, I just messed up, brings recognition of the miracle that is God into the very journey up the mountaintop. God isn't only at the top, God is on the path. God may be found in the dazzling sunshine and in the uncountable stars, but God, according to our psalmist, is also the shade that shields us from the sun when it becomes too dazzling for comfort, like right now. Um, God is indeed what we seek, but God is also the keeper of our going out and our coming in, the strength of our uphill journeys, and the peace of standing on the height. By now, the marks of those pilgrims' footsteps are covered over with dust, the, rem the remnants of civilizations that come and go. But still, we have their words. We read their words this morning, and we have their story. We remember stories. That's why the Bible is so full of them, because we remember them. It's something about the narrative forms, the twists and turns, and the people who become friends in our imaginations. Stories are told and written, and through the cycle of seasons and years, God's people re-remember them and relive the stories. We all become actors in bringing those stories to live in our own day. These ancient stories become our own lives. During the season of Lent, 
we are invited into transfigurative moments. Apparently, transfigurative is not a valid word because my computer underlined it in red, but <clears throat> transfigurative is a good word. We're invited into those transfigurative moments. We may find ourselves dazzled. We may find ourselves in the dust. Maybe monuments will be built. Probably not. But indeed, there will be stories wanting to be told and needing to be told. Your Lenten journey, get this, your Lenten journey Your Lenten journey is most likely a legend because God will appear to you. You may be struck still by the dazzle of it. You may be knocked flat by a voice from a cloud full of sunlight. God might come to you in the brightness or God might come to you as comforting shade. But always, always, Lent calls us to rise up, to climb the mountain, to wander an unmarked path, or stand still until your feet itch. You might be called to make bold proclamations of God's love, or you may be called to stand in silence, listening for those voices in the clouds. If we join the long line of everybody, something will happen something that will dazzle us in almost mythical ways, or something that might be more common. Maybe finding our troubles soothed by a friend's touch, or finding courage in ourselves to touch a stranger's plan. Maybe in the end, we'll settle back quietly to some place near where we began. Or we may slide downhill in a jumble of pebbles with a wild friend landing far from any place we've ever seen. I think that's what happened to the disciples. They knew nothing when they got to the bottom of that hill. God revealed can knock us flat. God's touch can lift us up again. By definition, even a pile of junk can be transfigured, made beautiful by the light. And God's people, all of us here, God's people are not junk. So surely, transfiguration can happen to me. It can happen to you. It can happen to all of us. All of us can be transfigured. So let's allow ourselves to be flabbergasted. Let's continue our Lenten expotition, dazzling in the light of God. Amen.